to the Rescue Radio, the show that brings you closer to the outdoors. I'm Anya Viktorovich, and I'm very happy that you're joining us today. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Rescue Radio. Today, we'll talk about a rescue that happened uh, on Avalanche Mountain near Anchorage. With me, I have my friend, Andrew Holman. Hi, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? Good. So he agreed to talk about his accident. He was solo climbing and he will talk about what happened and talk about the whole rescue. But before we do that, Andrew, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, my name's Andrew. Um, I've been climbing for um, probably since 2010. That's when I took the basic climbing education program. BSEP uh, is the acronym with the Mazamas in Portland. And I live in Alaska now. I've been here for probably the last eight years and I like to climb, you know, you name it, ice, rock, snow, moss, choss, whatever we have, on, <laughs> all that stuff up here in Alaska. So Has it been eight years, really? It has. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Oh, my gosh. It feels, it feels like I just moved here still in a way. But yeah, it's been a yeah. long time. It's weird. I've been here longer than I've been in Portland now, which is weird. That is insane. Before we talk about the accident, can you tell us and something about the Avalanche Mountain? I've, I've never climbed in Alaska, so I have no idea how it looks like and you know, what, what you are looking at when, you, when you're climbing this mountain. In Alaska, there's, I, th I believe, five major mountain ranges. And one of them is called the Chugach. And that's the mountain range that is closest to Anchorage. And then there's a section of the Chugach that, you know, folks in Anchorage, we call the front range, like a lot of like mountain areas have their area that they call the front range. And so Avalanche Mountain is a part of the Front Range. You know, you can see it. If you know where to look, you can see it from town from certain angles. There's also kind of a peak bagging list called the uh, Chugach 120 that people are work, people work on where they try to summit every mountain in Chugach State Park. So the western part of the Chugach is all a state park. It's pretty huge. It's like bigger than Grand Teton National Park. And it's just the state park that kind of borders up against Anchorage. And so Avalanche Mountain is on that 120 list. It's not very tall. It's a little over 5,000 feet, but it has enough prominence to be one of the official, you know, 120 peaks in the park. And is it rock climbing? Is it scrambling? It's just a scramble. So um, yeah. in the summer, it's um, it's about a six-mile approach on a very, very easy trail. It's called the um, Powerline Trail. And it's called that because literally there are power lines ran on it. And now it's kind of been turned into, you know, an outdoor space. And so it's really wide and really well graded. You know, in the winter, people will fat bike on it, which is kind of like a, a mountain bike with extra wide tires. A lot of people do that up in Anchorage in Alaska. And even, you know, certain times of year, if the snow packs enough, people are allowed to even snowmobile on it, or as we call in Alaska, snow machining. If you want to <laughs> win points with Alaskans, say snow machine, never say, never say <laughs> snowmobile or sled or anything like that. But, um, so it's a really well-graded, really well-maintained trail. It's probably the most popular trailhead um, that it goes off from in Anchorage, but more or less to the mountain from the trailhead is about six miles on this Powerline Pass trail. And then you said it's about 5,000. So what's the what's the gain? How, t how high do you have to climb? Not that high. The gain's probably only about 3,000 feet. Uh, the trailhead is, I think, around two or a little bit less than two. And in the summer, so I was up there in early October, and that's kind of when the snow is starting to come down the mountains. Mm -hmm. We call that termination dust, meaning it's kind of the termination of the summer when you start seeing the white powder slowly make its way down the peaks. And so that had started to happen. I think, I don't know, it was maybe, the snow was maybe at the 4,000 foot level in early October. I did a lot of research on it, but most of the most of the times people go up there is in the summer, and it's 
pretty a pretty easy class three scramble uh, mm-hmm. in the summer. It's not not anything too crazy. It's probably just not done as much because of the six mile approach. So it's not really like a casual hike for most casual hikers. And then it's not technical enough to be interesting to technical climbers unless they're trying to get all the peaks in the Chugach like I am. So it's kind of an awkward middle ground there. So you did it in October. I'm assuming the weather was pretty nice. It was a really nice fall day. I mean, uh, it was kind of like the so the entire the entire approach was went really quickly because there's no snow on the trails or anything like that. Um, there's a lot of people out because it was a nice bluebird day and there was tons of um, it was kind of like it's kind of the moose rutting season in early October. So there was lots of moose. I took my um, really heavy like two pound telephoto lens and I was taking photos of the moose and stuff on the way in. There's lots of families and stuff on the trail. So yeah, it was really really great conditions and kind of why I decided to go out there is two weeks earlier there's another mountain that as the crow flies is about I measured it on Caltapo today almost exactly two miles from Avalanche Mountain mm. and it's called the ramp and I had gone up there two weeks earlier and on the ramp it was like there was snow kind of just on the you know last little pinnacle of the peak very forgiving powdery snow like I took Mike I don't know what the not brand name of these is but I took whatever the generic name for micro spikes is and I also took crampons because I just didn't know what the snow was going to be like until I got up there and so this the crampons stayed in my pack because it was just very forgiving very dry airy powdery snow with just a dusting so it's just like you could still more or less climb the rock scramble up on the rock and stuff that was two weeks prior to October 6th, and there was no new snowfall in between that time. Avalanche Mountain is at a similar elevation, and it's a similar aspect, and it's almost the same elevation. And so I thought I probably could get away with not bringing the crampons when I went up Avalanche Mountain and bring similar stuff to what I brought up the ramp. Got it. Okay, so tell us what happened. I was making good time, and the Powerline Pass Trail ends at a pass called Powerline Pass, and it's very popular with mountain bikers because it's kind of like you can start at 2,000 feet and go up to the pass, and I don't know what the elevation of the pass is. I'm guessing it's probably around three, and then it kind of curves around, and you can go from 3,000 feet of gain like all the way to the inlet, more or less, all the way to sea level. So it's like you you do 1,000 feet of gain on one side, and then you just coast all the way down to the ocean, more or less, on the other side. And so I made the pass and, you know, I don't know, less than two hours. It was quite windy at the pass, as it usually is. I kind of just started, you kind of hit the pass, and then you kind of, from the pass, kind of just start going up the, the south face of the mountain, more or less, to the ridge. Again, it was still pretty good conditions, except, like, it was starting to get pretty icy up there. There started to be, like, kind of bubbles and little formations of rime on it, which... I'm sure you know from climbing Mount Hood, you see that stuff a lot in the Pacific Northwest where there's all that moist air. But Mm -hmm. it's not actually that common at a lot of peaks I've been to in the Chugach to see kind of rhyme formations like that. At least it wasn't in my experience to that point. So I had my micro spikes on because I didn't bring the crampons and I was making my way across the ridge and it was just taking a lot more time than I thought it would take, mainly because the traction was just not great um, with mm-hmm. those micro spikes because it just, I was sticking kind of militantly to the ridge, but you'd have to go down off the ridge around a gendarme that you couldn't really climb over. So working my way up the ridge was taking more time than I thought. It was quite slippery with those micro spikes. I also kind of started late in the day to get photos of the Alpenglow from being up there. I was just like, it was, it started to get so slow going. I was probably now maybe about a third of a mile as the crow flies from the summit and maybe a couple hundred feet of gain from it. But it just looked like there was going to be a lot more 
delicate ridge work, scrambling over stuff. And I was already not feeling too confident on the easy terrain with those um, traction devices. I had actually, the only reason I had those is um, I did one of the rock climbing routes on Mount Whitney and there was still kind of snow in that couloir on the Mountaineers route, which was going to be our descent. And we wanted to save weight and not bring, you know, full on crampons. So I bought these in Lone Pine, these little like, you know, rubberized slip on things with chain kind of spikes on the bottom. And as far as that type of thing goes, they were pretty gnarly for that type of traction, you know, but nothing compared to a real crampon. I kind of thought, you know, it's not going to be worth it to keep pushing on because I don't want, I, I literally had this thought, you know, that was implanted in me from the Mazamas and from doing sort of rescue scenario stuff and mountain first aid stuff. And that I was like, I don't want to be like in the paper because I pushed on with not real crampons. And then people will say, oh, he's a, he's a mountaineer. And where was his, where were his crampons? He, yeah. he owns three pair. Why didn't he bring any up there? And I started thinking all that stuff. And I was like, God, I don't want to. I don't want to have to deal with any of that. And also, I don't want to slip. But I didn't think a slip was going to be that likely. I just thought it was going to slow me down so much that it was going to take forever to work through this terrain. So I kind of hemmed and hawed. And I was like, you know what? I'm calling it a kind of a ritual of mine is going to this pizza place in Anchorage called the Moose's Tooth, which is named after the mountain. And I was like, I'm just going to go get some pizza and beer there. I could probably make it before they close if I turn around now. And I can kind of hit this summit on a sunny summer day. So I turned around. I started kind of walking back where I had walked on the ridge. I felt my foot slip. And then I was just flying. Like I was just rocketing down the mountain. Like there was no time to even react. It was just like there was no time to think about or to, to even go huh! or anything like that. I just started tumbling down the south face more or less. I was kind of getting really disoriented about which was way was up and down and I didn't have an ice axe, but I had a whip it. I was trying to dig that in, but there, there was all these rhyme baubles and it just wasn't, I wasn't getting any purchase. And at some point, like it flew off my hand and I lost it. And so then I went to my elbow and started digging my elbow in, trying to get traction. And it didn't really feel like it was doing anything. It just, it was hurting my elbow, but it didn't feel like it was slowing down the velocity at all. So at that point, I just kind of protected my head and neck and just waited for the momentum to stop because I looked at the slope shading today. And according to Caltapa slope shading, it's 35 to 45 degrees, most of that area. It's like that dark pink color. Yeah. But what I was nervous about is there were a lot of like, I don't know if you'd call them gendarmes if they're not on a ridge, but like formations like that jutting out of the south face. And I didn't want to hit into one of those. And there was a lot of a little micro features like that, like little micro ridges that you could go mm -hmm. off and then you would be falling like a little vertical fall falls of like yeah. five to 10 feet. And I didn't want to go down one of those. Eventually, I just came to a stop. How far did you fall? Yeah, so that's a good question. And because I was so diligent about the beta because I was by myself, I had all this map stuff with me and downloaded maps and everything. And so one of the, one of the first things I did was check that. And I was 500 feet of gain down from the ridge uh, oh, when I man. came to a stop. 500 feet. Yeah, of elevation loss from, like, as the, as the crow flies, it was longer than that because, as you know, I don't know, someone yeah. that is good at um, trigonometry can do the math of slope angle. That's a long fall. Yeah. Really, I was just glad that I stopped, but I was, like, really nervous about what I was about to see when I started checking myself out and because... I definitely hurt a lot. Like I, I felt like crunching sounds in my um, ribs. I started like getting very psychosomatic and convincing myself that like it was really hard to breathe. And I was like, I kind of thought I was feeling like fluid in my lungs, but I couldn't really tell because I was just yeah uh, in such a state of shock and adrenaline. So kind of I took my phone out and looked at my face and 
it didn't it was I would like had some abrasions and some blood, but it didn't look that bad. Kind of looked around to see what was going on, saw that the whip it was gone. I saw that one of the micro spikes had flown off. So now I had one micro spike and that was the only traction I had on this icy slope. I did what was probably one of the stupider things uh, I did that day and that I looked, I also had really like a really bad bruise on my upper right rib. And what that was is I always carry my camera with me and I have kind of a clip that goes on the strap that's kind of a quick release. So you can put like a tripod mount on a camera and slide it in and it snaps on and you push a button and it releases. So like if you're hiking or climbing, it's an easy way to have a heavier camera and, you know, kind of quickly stow it and quickly grab it. And so it was really that camera is probably one of the things that stopped me because it was just, it was on my chest when I was trying to arrest, just rubbing on that slope. And it, the quick release, unquick released. And I saw it like 10 feet above me. And I kind of just stared at it for like 10 minutes thinking like, do I want to attempt to get that? Because I had yeah. also just bought it two weeks earlier. Is it worth it? Yeah. It, I, yeah. I, I kind of hemmed and hawed like, is it worth it? Because if I get up there and I fall again, I mean, I, I might not be able to think about this stuff. But I, I came to the conclusion. I looked at my phone, saw that I didn't have any signal. I have a PLB, a personal locator beacon, but I didn't have it in the pack that I was wearing on that trip. So kind of my logic to justify getting my camera was the only way I'm getting out of here is if I can get out of here and what's 10 more feet of movement to the seven miles of movement it's going to take to get out of here or to get to an area or one mile maybe to get to the pass so I could get cell signal. So I was like, no matter what, I'm going to have to start moving. So the first thing I did is like, I stood up and almost slipped when I stood up. Kind of, I like put my hands underneath my layers to see if there's any blood anywhere that felt hurt and there was no external bleeding. And then I kind of slowly made my way up to the camera and I was able to get it. And then kind of slowly down climbed again. And again, yeah, looked at the camera or looked at the phone, didn't have any signal. And so... I was just like thinking about how I was going to get out of there. And pretty much I had lost a lot of elevation from the ridge. But then like as the crow flies from the ridge to uh, you could you kind of like Powerline Pass trail is so prominent that like the whole time on the whole climb, you can look down and see it. Even with the snow, you could see where the trail was. And it just looks so close. It's probably like foreshortening, but it's not that far. I measured it today. It's like 0.7 miles from where I was to the trail. But the train there is just so steep. Um, it would be... If I had, even if I just had the Whippet and the other micro spike, it would be trivial to get down there. But with just one micro spike, I was just like, I didn't think I was going to be able to down climb it. So instead, I did something even slower and I just started like traversing back to the pass. Cause kind of, uh, instead of just going down to the trail, I just tried to traverse back to where I came up to the ridge. It was just really, really slow goings. Cause pretty much what I was having to do is like, mm-hmm punch through like the rhyme powder rhyme slash powder stuff to get like a crappy handhold and then put my hand in that and then use the micro spiked boot to like do the same thing for the foot and then you know once I too had two hollowed out holes then I could beat in a hole for the other foot and just kind of keep alternating over and over and over again that must have taken forever it did it did and yeah I don't know the exact timetables because I was trying not to look at my phone too much because my phone was getting pretty low on battery at this point to yeah. as well. But I would guess that I was probably doing that for an hour and I had probably moved like 50 feet or something like that because it was just like it was so slippery and like 
I just, I almost fell again multiple times. I mean, it was just really tough. Um, eventually, I, eventually I was doing that and I had a very poor, but maybe almost line of sight into Anchorage because you could, I was now like at a point on the ridge where I could maybe hit it. You know, everyone always says like, just try 911, like just try it. It might work, you know, even if it says you have no signal. So I guess, I guess to back up right after the fall, I did try that and it didn't work. Now, so I tried it again. It started ringing and it went, it went to 911 and then I had a, um, a pixel phone at the time and it immediately started like whirring around with an animation calculating my GPS coordinates. And I was like, my name's Andrew Holman. I'm on Avalanche Mountain. I'm going to read my GPS coordinates to you right now if, if, if you're ready. And they're like, yeah, we're ready whenever. I mean, it's being recorded too. So, and so I read those off. They kind of asked me, you know, um, is there a flat spot? And I'm like, no, there's not any flat spot where I am. They asked me, you know, if I had food and I was like, I have like two cliff bars and they're like, do you have any water? And I was like, no. They were like, do you, can you, can you stay that? Could you make it the night? And I was like, uh, honestly, I probably could by just working up a sweat and doing calisthenics by moving this ridge. Like I really wouldn't want to, I could probably do it though. Um, but like, but I was like, I'm kind of wearing everything that I have right now. And they're like, okay. And then, then she was like, we're going to transfer you to, uh, the sheriff, not the sheriff, um, because there are no counties in Alaska. So there's not, it's not the system of what county you're in, who's the sheriff. But they transferred me to, I think, someone from Highway Patrol. And they kind of asked for similar information. And they were, then they were kind of like, they're like, okay, now, as soon as we're done with this confirmation, this conversation, like, power off your phone. And they were like, wait, 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 wait a minute. No, keep it on, keep it on. And then they, then my phone died. And so that was kind of that. But, I mean, so the, the most stupid thing I did the entire day, um, I haven't said yet, which is pretty much because I had done that, that peak, the ramp, earlier, and it was so moderate. This was just kind of something I decided to do in the afternoon and I didn't tell anyone I was doing it at all. Like no one, no one knew that I was up there at all. And so I was actually really excited at that point because I was just like, I got my GPS coordinates to people that know where I am, whether it takes them an hour or 20 hours to come out here, someone knows where I am and eventually something might happen. So that was like the really the shot of hope that I needed. So um, I wasn't even bummed a little yeah. bit that my phone uh, was dead. And so I just continued my super slow disabled march across that slope. Something I have learned from just from climbs taking longer than they do is that I always have at least two headlamps for anything, no matter what it is, even if it's the most easy day hike ever. So I had like a really bright headlamp that I bought that is just like a thousand lumen and I was using that and I knew that after three hours of that it would automatically like drop down to like five lumen I was working my way over and it dropped down and had a fresh charge so I was like oh well so it's probably been three-ish hours about since that call and um so at that point I put that I, I at that point I was just like climbing at five lumen and um making my way over and then I saw a super bright light on the slope that wasn't my headlamp I heard a chopper and they were kind of, I know this now because I, I listened to y'all's, maybe it was your last podcast about the um, the chopper pilot. Yeah, that was the last month. Yeah. Yeah. That was really, that was like perfect to listen to before this because that's exactly what they did. They did a flyby first before they kind of came and got me, right? Because they- And then they flew away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't that dramatic. It was just like, yeah. they flew away, but not by much. You know, it was like they're doing a 360 almost. And so I was like, this is crazy. Like, because kind of what I was expecting to happen, I think just based on time on Mount Hood and my time of PMR coming and talking to the Mazamas at, you know, every Mazamas class more or less and 
talking about the timetables and talking about how hard it is to get a chopper. I did not expect a chopper to be there at all. Like kind of what I expected to happen is there would be an ATV or a snow machine or something like that would come up from the trailhead. And then some people would climb up to me and, and, you know, either like give me crampons or help me down climb or lower me back to the trail and then give me like a ride back to the parking lot. And I was like, oh, I had like a, a flask of whiskey with me and no, no water, but flask of whiskey, go, go figure. But I was already like, yeah, and I'm, then, then they're going to pick me up on the ATV and I'm going to give them a sip of whiskey and they're going to give me a ride out. But I had no idea it was going to be, um, a, co- a, a helicopter. I was, I was shocked. Yeah, they did a quick flyby and then not even a minute later came back and then lowered a line. And at this point, I was at like one of these little micro ridges that kind of had these like gendarme-like formations. And so I was just kind of hug- bear hugging that thing because the, um, the wind from the chopper was so intense. Like it, I was like blowing me off my feet. And so like I was doing that and like that is, it's funny because it's like because I was moving, right? I wasn't really that cold the entire time because I was kind of constantly exerting myself, but then just bear hugging that icy gendarme and then just the blast of, I don't even know how many mile per hour winds from the helicopter. I was just so chilled. And I was just like, at that point I was like so ready to be pulled off. Cause just, just cause I was so cold. Like I was shivering, like, but you know, <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. And so then they down the line came down and then one person came down and then another person came down and they had mountaineering boots on but they didn't have any sort of uh, foot traction and they were like slip sliding on the rope mm-hmm. trying to like, they were like, they came down like 10 feet below me and they were like slippery, slipping around on the rope trying to like get up to where I was. Mm-hmm. And then um, I actually don't remember what much they said to me, except one of them was kind of saying like, no matter how bad, he was pretty much like, don't worry, we're going to get you up in there. And once we get up in there, we have drugs that are going to make you feel better. And however you're feeling right now, you're not going to feel like that once you're in that helicopter. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, that sounds good. Um, and I, I uh, had never been rescued from a helicopter before. At that point in my life, I've never even recreationally rode in a helicopter. So I didn't know what they were going to do. I just, like, I guess I kind of assumed there was going to be some sort of drop seat harness, but it wasn't that. Like, they kind of lassoed me around my chest below my arms and were like telling me like, put your arms up and around this and, you know, kind of uh, grip your hands together. And then they started to, and then, so I was doing that and they started to hoist and I was just like, if my ribs weren't broken before, like they definitely are now because the pressure of that thing, like all the, all the load being just on that and no, no other thing. I mean, it was, it hurt really bad. And um, yeah, I didn't realize how dangerous this was at the time because I wasn't thinking about it, but I kind of instinctively kind of lifted one of my arms up because the, the heart, it was just hurting me so bad. And the guy's like, don't do that. Keep your arms down. But I think about it now, right? You like, you think if you put your arms up, you could theoretically you just slip go out of it and just slide out. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, uh, like think about it in the retrospect. I'm like, I don't, I don't <laughs> like that. But uh, they got me in there and the guy gave me some wonderful, some sort of sucker, like a lozenge that was like a fentanyl, fruit flavored lozenge and then gave me a shot of ketamine and from that point it was kind of like these were friendly abductors like it was like a friendly (laughs) abduction is kind of what it felt like like I kind of knew that they were humans but they kind of just seemed like humanoids that were like helping me I started to feel much warmer I just was like at peace I mean it was um it was really it was really good and then um they took me to the hospital kind of landed right on the roof kind of pulled me out and asked me if I was I could walk, and I was just kind of like, well, yeah, sure I can. Like I don't have to be on this slope anymore. It should be easy. And then I kind of stood up and was like, whoa, like I was really unbalanced. I think 
they put me in a wheelchair then, and then I was just like, they had stripped a bunch of stuff off of me when they got me in in the helicopter, and I was just like, please, please, like that thousand lumen headlamp was really, it's really hard to get stuff like that in Alaska because it's really hard to ship batteries to Alaska. And it's really expensive. Like, please make sure that stays with me. That's like all I can think about. It's like, don't leave my headlamp in the helicopter. And they're like, okay, all right. Well, don't worry about my ribs. They're, yeah, they're exactly they're like, we'll put it in your pack. We'll put it in your pack. It's okay. We'll put it in. I'm like, okay. And then, um, then I kind of came off the haze of the, um, of the ketamine for the most part once I was in the hospital and things started to kind of get normal. And, but I was just like frantically shivering the whole time. And like the people at the hospital are like, are you nervous? Are you, does this make you nervous? I'm like, I'm not nervous. I'm just irrationally cold. And they kept, uh, putting these microwaved blankets on me over and over again that were like really hot. But, uh, you know, I don't know, not to say whatever, uh, anything political about, uh, the medical system, but it, the folks that are there to get information for me to eventually pay them were extremely efficient and to the point um, and right up in my face. And also very confused. Like people kept asking me, did you, so you slipped in the bathtub? Where did you slip? Did you slip in the bathtub? Did you slip on the side? And I was like, no, I, I, I was on out this mountain out there. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, the do- eventually a doctor came out and he was talking to me and he was like asking me how many feet, uh, how long I fell. I was like, I was like, well, I fell 500 feet, but it's not like a vertical fall like in the movies. It's just down like a slope. But he's like, what do you think the slope angle was? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I was like, probably at minimum 20, at maximum 50, and you know, various things in between there. And he's like, he's like, well, does your head hurt? Do you do you feel like, you know, he was asking me, he was trying to assess if there's anything like hazy about uh, me mentally, you know, doing all the, the cliche, like, where are you right now? What What's your name? Where do you live? Questions, who's the president, blah, blah, blah. And so he was like, because of the fall, because of the length of it and the kind of the trauma of it, he was like, well, we're going to just do, you know, all these different scans. So I don't know exactly all what they did, but it did various x-rays and CAT scans and things like that. Miraculously, there was nothing broken, not even like a silly little cracked rib, nothing. I mean, which is interesting to me because I've previously taken a really bad um, fall on rock and cracked ribs from that and this my ribs felt way worse uh, after this but it was probably just a lot of soft tissue damage or or something like that but yeah i mean that was and i was there i don't know probably the hardest part was being an android person getting a charging cable so i could like tell people what happened uh, because my phone was dead and after i don't know maybe five or six hours they released me and then I took a lift back to the trailhead at like midnight and got my car (laughs) and uh that was that was kind of it, and then drove home. As far as you know, I I kind of had you know a limp for the next couple weeks, but other than that, other than the limp and some you know road rash and bruises and things like that, it was not that bad. And the other thing that I was worried about from from all the talks of simulated stuff and mountaineering and first aid type courses is like I was just so glad they didn't like cut my clothes off and cut cut all my jackets and layers. I was like, oh, thanks. Thanks so much for leaving those intact. Like, because everyone's like, they're going to cut your jacket. They're going to cut your precious little Arcteryx $800 Gore-Tex jacket. They're going to cut it. So you, and I was just like, ah. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I got the headlamp and I got no, uh, no incisions on any of my layers. So that was, that was nice. And you saved your camera. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the camera shockingly, yeah, served me for like another uh, four years and it didn't, I, it didn't really have even any cosmetic damage to it. I mean, it worked fine. But I think, yeah, the drag from that as I was trying to self-arrest definitely helped because it's just another thing to scrape on that terrain and kind of slow me down. Who knew that your passion would save your life one day? (laughs) Yeah. 
We didn't mention that, but Andrew, he's a very passionate photographer and you have a website, right? Um, I currently don't. Uh, I currently only have an Instagram, but yeah, I'm building one right now. Amazing, amazing photos just from climbing and getting around. Did you wear a helmet? I didn't ask about that. I didn't, which is interesting. That's a really good question because I am, um, I mean, my friends up here kind of joke about me and how often I do wear a helmet. I, like even the most mundane scrambles, I usually have a helmet. But again, it was it was almost like the beta from two weeks earlier kind of poisoned my well. And mm. that was those snow conditions were so favorable and there was no new snow that no, I didn't bring one. Um, now, now kind of anything in the winter, I even if it's anything in the winter, I usually bring a helmet. After having that podcast for two years, I started to bring helmet on like little little things as well, just because it doesn't weigh anything. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. And for me, I mean, I, maybe I'm unique in that my helmets uh, kind of are so comfortable that I, I'll get in the car with them and not realize I still have them on. You know what I mean? Like then also as as I've done more stuff in the Chugach, I mean, I think I'd probably climbed, I don't know, maybe 17 mountains in the Chugach at that point, And now I'm up to like 88. And oh, nice. Yeah. So just going through more of those. The, the rock quality, I mean, everyone says this about their local climbing area, but like, it really is very bad. Like the, mm. the Chugach Choss, we call it. I mean, it's worse than I would say the Oregon Cascades by far. It's really bad. So I usually just bring it even on moderate stuff because the rock's just so loose. I, even on stuff that's very moderate, the rock is just really loose. Unless it's something that's, that's the other thing too, is that unless it's something that's been done a lot, which a lot of these mountains have been done three times, seven times, 10 times ever. Um, not Avalanche Mountain, of course, but it, not anything mm. in the front range. But a lot of these peaks, like, they also haven't been cleaned. So it's bad rock and not a lot of people go up there. So all the bad rock's still up there, you know. Let's talk about things that you would change. What What do you think you could have done better? Yeah, so that's a good question. And um, a lot of things, first of all, obviously, would be telling someone where I'm going. And now I kind of, I have just like a group chat with um, three people in it called emergency contacts and the icon is the is the sos you know icon and if, even if it's even if i'm doing just the most simple flat top which is kind of like anchorage's equivalent of like an angel's rest in oregon like just the, the touristy hike everyone does even if i'm doing that unless it's if it's like unless it's like the unless it's like summer where the days are long and there's no snow or no chance for anything bad mm -hmm. there's tons of people up there i kind of always tell them where i am and what i'm doing so that's the major thing i would say because just no one knew i was in that part of the, of the range or of Alaska at that point. The other thing that I do do differently now is I always have a backup battery to charge my phone mm -hmm. and even kind of one up on that. It's like, I always tell people, I'm like, I'm your person for advice on that. It's like, if you have like a more modern phone, you want like one of those batteries too, that can charge at like 30 Watts because then it won't just trickle charge it and it won't just keep the phone alive. Even when it's cold, it will make the battery start going up. Even if you're, you know, using the light on it and you're on a call and you, you know, like, like the higher wattage you can get on one of those things, which it's tough because then they start getting more heavy. But yeah, I have like a 30 watt USB-C charger now for stuff like that. And coincidentally, I also have a headlamp that can also charge off that battery. So the battery could charge my phone or it could charge my headlamp in case weird, weird stuff happens. Nice. The other thing is, um, I do have, like, I do always have my PLB uh, in the pack that I'm using. And then the other thing I did um, just recently is I switched, after being a diehard Android person for, like, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, I switched to iPhone 
for the satellite SOS. And I actually switched mainly. Um, what actually encouraged me to do that is I was up just doing a very moderate hike, like very far north in Alaska, like north of the Arctic Circle. And I was charged by two brown bears and there's no signal or no nothing up there. I had no way to kind of do any sort of communication that, I mean, they kind of bluff charged me and stopped like 10 feet away from me. And then I got a trickle of symbol. And again, I just like posted to a group. I said, here's where I am. This is what just happened. But then like I had no signal again for like eight hours. And so then like three days later, the new iPhone was announced with satellite SOS. And then that's what caused me to switch to that too. So kind of now I have the satellite SOS from the iPhone. I have the PLB for redundancy. And then, you know, if there is any going to be any cell signal, I have like a way to charge the phone. So I think what a lot of people wanted me to say after this happened is that I wouldn't do stuff like this alone anymore. But to me, that's just my people can have their opinions. But for me, that's just not an option for me. I'm very introverted and very independent. And like being in the mountains alone is kind of a big thing for me a lot of times. And I also just think sometimes coordinating stuff with other people adds a la- can add a layer of friction that uh, you don't always get into the mountains as often as you like to. Having said that, you know, I definitely when I'm by myself, definitely take less risks and am more careful and more um, mindful about the risks. And if I'm pushing it, I definitely turn around way more if I'm by myself, because it's just there's a lot less room for error, for sure. What went well? What went well is that, I mean, I could get a signal. I mean, that that's kind of the main thing. I think I probably could have still got out of there, maybe. See, that's the thing. It's a big if. The big if is if I fell again or not. If I, if I were to slip and fall again, it would have been really bad. But if I didn't slip and fall again, I can kind of... Um, I'm good at kind of mentally um, getting into a rhythm and powering through. It just would have taken forever. I mean, it probably would have taken 20 hours to get out of there. That was the other thing is that I, I've never really lost toe toenails before, but I lost multiple ones from that, from just kicking with like these mm-hmm. three-fourth shank boots into this rime ice with no crampons over and over and over again. So maybe I couldn't have. Maybe my I would have just got to a state of trauma in my feet and pain in my feet that I couldn't do it anymore. And the rescue went really well. We're really lucky up here in Alaska and that kind of the rescue was carried out by the Air Force, by the 212th Rescue Squadron, which is part of the 176th Wing. And so people up here call them the PJs, but it's like a pararescue kind of uh, group. And they're really good at what they do and they really enjoy what they do. And I kind of kept in contact with the rescuers afterwards. I gave them some of my uh, beer that I brew and they gave me some Uh, PJ hats and stuff like that. And they don't charge for rescue, which I mean, that's a very controversial thing that varies a lot, whatever state, county, whatever you're in. So I really lucked out on that part of it for sure. What a story. Anything else that you would like to add? I don't know. I I think I would just say, and I haven't, I've only listened to the, um, you know, the helicopter podcast that y'all did before, but I would kind of say that Something that I think is often underemphasized are, um, you know, devices for to get you rescued if something goes wrong. I think there's a lot of emphasis on other gear. Like everybody, I always, t- I always joke. I'm like everybody always loves buying their first ice axe, but like no one loves buying a PLB. Just they, they just aren't as fun of purchases now because you kind of, it's kind of a bummer that you have to think about bad stuff. I think it's kind of something to research and figure out what works for you because I know a lot of people like, you know, like the spots or the inReach. I like the PLB just because it's a battery that lasts for like five years and there's no there's no monthly recurring payments. But I just have some way to contact someone in some way without having to have a cell signal. And I think that's going to get better. It seems like satellite communication 
in all cell phones. That's kind of the next frontier. So we might not even be having these conversations in a couple of years anymore. But until we get there, I think that's kind of a really important thing that's very underestimated. That's a really good message. I mean, they're not cheap either. So, but at the same time, how much is your yeah. life worth? Did you ever go back to climb it again? Yeah, I actually, this happened, you know, in early October and then in early November, November 3rd of 2019, I went back with my friend Justin Miller, who um, is kind of a um, cycling aficionado. So not only does he have a fat bike, but he has two fat bikes. So we will, we were able to do the approach in like no time, like, I don't know, 45 minutes. Huh. Um, to, we got to the pass and maybe like 45 minutes using those and then went up there. And then it was kind of like... <laughs> By by November in Alaska, it was kind of almost the complete opposite problem in that we did take crampons and they were useful for certain sections, but a lot of that ridge just had so much snow that there was a lot of like, you know, hip deep wallowing of snow. <laughs> and then the gendarmes would be have rime ice, but then there you would just be like swimming in the stuff to get there. But you know, it was just such an energy saver to use those fat bikes to get in and out. And then I've since kind of been up there quite a bit because it's um I don't know, it's kind of a meaningful peak to me. And it's also like a, always an interesting early season place. And now I kind of know that that wasn't unique when there was that all that rime ice up there. Having been there back, back there a couple more times since then over the past couple years, I've kind of noticed that the rime ice formations I was seeing on Avalanche Mountain, which I should also add, is technically called South Avalanche Mountain. There's also a North Avalanche Mountain. They're both part of the same kind of massive, but everyone just calls the one I did Avalanche Mountain. But those conditions on that ridge with all that rhyme are pretty typical. Um, most of the times I've been up there, it has been like that. And also some of the worst winds I've ever been in uh, in my life have been at Powerline Pass. So I think it's just a localized wind current that sucks through that pass that, you know, forces moist air onto that slope. So yeah, I, I kind of thought they were unique conditions when I was there, but having been back since then, that's just kind of how stuff works on that mountain. And I, I and you know, that has also given me kind of um, spooky feelings about everything that happened too, because it just so happened that when the copter came out, there was no winds there at all. Oh, wow. And if the winds, I mean, normally at that pass, often at those that pass, I don't really have something that can measure wind speed with me usually, but like, it's been to the point where it's just like, it's been, I've been hiking out in the dark with shades on to not get shards of ice in my eyes. Like probably 60 mile per hour winds are common in that area. And I think back like, man, if that was happening, they, they probably would not have been able to do that. You know what I mean? It, it was just too dangerous. It'd be too dangerous yeah. to fly a chopper in weather like that. So that was just luck. You know, that I was really lucky in that way. Did you recognize the spot where you slipped? I did. Yeah. Yeah. How was it? It's pretty, pretty, pretty spooky. It's yeah, pretty spooky. Yeah. 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 It's still spooky to look down that that slope and it's interesting cuz sometimes when I describe it to people they um think I fell down the north side of Avalanche Mountain and if you were if you look at that on a map um you would not survive a fall mm -hmm. on the north side of it. It's just like a sheer sheer drop. I was like, "Nope, nope, just that moderate south side is what banged me up, you know what I mean? North side I probably wouldn't be here anymore if I fell off that side, you know." Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Andrew, thank you so much for talking about this. I know it's not easy to talk about your own mistakes, so I really appreciate it. I know somebody will take something away from this. Um, so really good tips. Yeah, no, no problem. Please be careful. Yeah, will do. Will do. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate you. You can check us out at pmru.org.
We're also on Facebook and Instagram under Portland Mountain Rescue, where you can find lots of useful information like current mountain conditions and other public education news. A huge shout out to our editor, Murray Feher, for making us sound great. Until next time, and play safe.